Okay, so we're in Song of Solomon 3. And let's just be reminded that the Song of Solomon is eight chapters of love poetry. It isn't any kind of literary design that we can use a framework of how to understand the flow. It's not a narrative, so there's not this series of events. It's not chronological history that's going on. Um, there is a narrator, and there are characters, um, but remember, this is poems. So we know the main, the main voice of the poem is that of a woman. She's known as the beloved, or we might refer to her as the bride. There's also a male voice, and that's the groom, her lover. Then there's Solomon. He's mentioned, but he has no voice in the book. He's mentioned, but has no voice. Uh, there's the group of marital age women. We call them the daughters of Zion, or sometimes they're referred to the daughters of Jerusalem, but these are the virgins. So I might say the young women or the virgins, and that's the group I'm talking about. And remember we said that this couple's already married from the beginning. And from the start of these poems or songs, we see this flow of back and forth um, between um, the man's voice and the woman's voice. Um, and there's not really any clear lineal sequence of the storyline. You have to be reminded of that. The poem or the songs move in these symphonic cycles. That's the term that Becky used. It's these cycles where images and ideas are repeated and they're developed. And one of the overarching themes of the whole book um, is this intense desire that the couple has for one another. And they express it through their seeking and their finding. So in our first lesson, mom taught it was chapter one, verses one through four. We looked at the different verb tenses in those verses and um, the beloved or the bride is speaking of her love for him. They're with each other. So they was, there wasn't a seeking, there was just a finding. They found each other and then they intimately unite. That was like the pattern of the theme of seeking and finding for that first lesson. Our second lesson, we finished chapter one and went into chapter two, verse seven. And the beloved or the bride, if you remember, she's distressed about her appearance. She has anxiety um, and she's unable to find her love. And he, uh, she's told where he is. She finds him. He addresses her fears, communicates his love and devotion for only her. Remember, there was that exclusivity. Um, his love for his bride is great. She was seeking him. They found each other. They rejoiced in their love with one another and they intimately unite. So it's that pattern again. Then in our last lesson, we finished up chapter two and uh, they're looking for each other again. So do you see how like it's just this cycle? It's not this we think in story format. We think in narrative. It's not a narrative. It's this repeated type of ideas. Um, but in that last lesson we looked at, the groom was pursuing the bride, overcoming obstacles to be with her. And just like the other times, after this seeking and finding encounter, there's descriptive verbs of how they love one another, and then there's language to show that they unite intimately. And tonight, we'll continue with this seeking and finding, resulting in sexual intimacy with the beloved looking for her man. And so tonight, the theme we see in this text that I hope to convince you of is God gave spouses a desire for intimacy and he is ultimately the one who can fulfill it. God gave spouses a desire for intimacy, and he is ultimately the one who can fulfill it. And so there are 
chapter three is one poem, but there's two parts. The first part is verses one through five, and this is where we're going to see the reality of intimacy. And then the second part of the poem is six through 11, and it's going to be a contrast of the reality with what's the ideal intimacy, what's the idyllic intimacy. So verses one through five, I'm just going to read it again, just so you're familiar with it. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city. In the streets and the squares, I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and I would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So this first part of the poem, verses 1 through 5, is enigmatic. You might see the header of, in your um, Bible you have, that it says, the bride's dream. Remember, those are not inspired words. Those are what people who arranged the Bible put there. So I'm saying it's enigmatic because does on my bed at night indicate she's thinking or dreaming? Did she really go around the city searching for her lover or is she imagining the scene? So, but based on how we're interpreting the Song of Solomon, it's not a narrative. I don't think she actually went out into the streets and I don't think it's a dream. But what I do know about poetry, um, Jeff had said this in our training, it's, poetry isn't stagnant, it's always moving. And Song of Solomon is composed of all of these poems or these songs that move in cycles where images and ideas are repeated and developed. And I think the author is using descriptive language to and images to convey something very clear here. She's pining for her absent lover, she pursues him until she finds him and brings him back to a place of intimacy where they can experience union. So again, we see this pattern of absence and longing that lead to search and discovery, which results in intimacy and joy. And the first four verses, if you see uh, um, the lover, her man, she repeats what, what she calls him. Four times she says, the one who my soul loves. Four times she says it in like such a short amount of time, so a short amount of verses. It's not just the one I love, but it's the one whom my soul loves. She's yearning for him. He is named by her desire. This isn't just physical desire. The word soul here shows she's interested not only in his um, physical appearance, but also his inner self. Um, basically, she desires his completeness, all of what makes him up, you know, all that makes him a person, the inside and out. Her initial search for him in verse 1 is a failure. I did not find him, so she sets out on a broader quest. In verse 2, she takes action. She's moving from wishing to doing something about it. She wants to find her lover. Look at the verbs in verse 2. It says, I will rise, and I will seek, and I sought him. These are strongly assertive words which convey determination. She has made up her mind to find him. And so we see in verse 2, she goes into the city searching through the streets, or you could say like the squares or the plazas. She's frantic 
and goes after him with all the risks and dangers that this action entails. Again, this is a metaphor. I don't think she actually went into the streets wandering around looking for him. I mean, she would be called a prostitute in that day if she did that. And the Bible is not highlighting anything that's sinful. So this is a metaphor here. Rather, the words describe the movement from a passive desire to a focused determination to bring her lover to bed. The beloved takes upon herself the responsibility of nurturing her love by courageous determination to take the man to herself. So this it's courageous because she's venturing out into the city at night alone. She's putting herself at risk. Finding her man is of such importance that she would put herself at risk to find the one whom her soul loves. So the city or the public square is full of people and activity. This isn't conductive to romance. Nevertheless, she does not immediately find him. She takes this opportunity to ask the watchman if they've seen her lover. Now, we'll encounter the watchman again in chapter 5, and in chapter 5, they act differently towards her. But here, again, we need to be reminded this is poetic fiction. This is descriptive words and imagery to convey a point. These are real-life ideas, real-life themes and emotions, truths that God wants us to learn, but he's doing it through poetry. The watchmen are silent here in chapter 3. They're not hostile. In fact, they don't even respond to her. They're mute. The passage doesn't even indicate that they help her. So based on what little information we have about the watchmen, I think it's safe to say that the watchmen are used in the poem for movement, a move from she what there's a move of security to risk, from safety to danger. She was safe in her bed, and now she's alone in the city place that needs watchmen or guards because of danger. As we read on, the beloved finds her man pretty immediately after she sees the guards. It says she grabs him, won't let him go till they reach the privacy of her mother's bedroom, the place where she was conceived. So in verses 1 through 4, the beloved moves from private space of her bed to the public space of the city and then back with him to the private place of their home and chamber. It's like she's saying, I brought him home to the place of security. I brought him to bed, the place of intimacy and lovemaking. And if you're like me, you're like, why does it say my mother's house? Now, at least to us, a mother's bedroom seems strange to equate as a place of romantic intimacy. Um, I would think we all agree with that. But in the day of Song of Solomon, when it was written, this wouldn't have been strange. Here we have a cultural distinction. We we aren't necessarily familiar with. Now remember, families back then would live generationally. So different generations would be in the same household. Um, unlike today. Today we're single family units. If you go on realtor.com, if that's like the option, single family unit. Like it's just usually the husband and wife and their children. Um, but in that day, there was way more family that lived in your household. The mother's bedroom was a place associated with intimacy. It was the place of the previous generation's romantic liaisons. So by the author mentioning my mother's house into the chamber of who conceived me is an indirect way to indicate the woman's intention to make love. Also, culturally, mothers played an integral role in arranging marriages for their daughters. We see more cultural significance um, in the Bible, with Naomi, she charged her two bereaved daughters-in-law to return to their mother's home in Ruth 1. 
Isaac and Rebecca consummated their marriage in his parents' tent in Genesis 24. Later on in our text here, um, it's Solomon's mother who crowns him on the day of his wedding. Um, That's verse 11. So here in the first part of chapter 3, the beloved started alone in a private place, the safety of her bed in verse 1, to being in the public place, a big safety risk, being alone in the city, back to security, the most safe place, in her mother's home with her lover. And all that culminates in the act of love. And this fits the pattern we've seen thus far, each poem ending with sexual intimacy. And all that that is underlined by the warning that the beloved brings to the circle of young women in verse 5. Her passion led her to an energetic pursuit of her man, and once she found him, she brought him to a place of intimacy. What wouldn't woman want? Wouldn't want to feel her passion or, and find that satisfaction. So the beloved wisely tells the others not to rush into love, but to wait for the proper time. And that word adjure at the beginning of verse 5, it's a forceful warning. It's like a command. She strongly warns them or commands them to wait on their passions till the right time. Just as she did back in 2.7. She'll also do this again when we get to chapter 8, verse 4. Both those texts have the same refrain warming to the young women to wait for sexual intimacies until the right time. All three times, whether it was 2, 7, here in 3, 5, or in 8, 4, we see the same pattern. The beloved and her man are seeking and finding each other. They celebrate the wonder of their love for each other. They're intimate. And then there's the warning to the young women. Okay, so... Verses 1 through 5 is the reality of marital intimacy. And what I say about the reality is she's actually very relatable right here. Because there are problems. And that's the results of living in a fallen world. What are the problems? She can't find her husband. She's got to go get him. And there's danger. Um, No, I'm not saying that's exactly your problems. So hold on, I'm getting there. The wife is looking for her husband. He's nowhere to be found. She's lonely. Have you ever been lonely? It doesn't matter if you're married or not. All of us experience loneliness. When I was, when we first came to this church and I started talking to other friends who were pastor's wives or just went to other churches and I was asking them what they did for a Bible study. One, I was shocked at how many churches don't do women's Bible study. Um, But two, my friends that did have a women's ministry or Bible study, they, I would ask them questions, and all of them told me the biggest struggle that women have when they, like, you know, confide or come to leadership in Bible study is loneliness. So this is, like, even if you don't realize it, this is a really big issue, not just in married couples, but with women in general, is loneliness. And our bride... The beloved is lonely at the beginning of this poem. But she isn't just lonely. She desires her lover. She desires her husband, the one whom her soul loves. She has this good desire for intimacy and to be protected by her husband. So she puts herself in harm's way to go find him. Her desire for her husband is a good thing. Desire for your husband is a good thing. The desire for intimacy in the context of marriage is good. It's God's design. And we see here that the wife initiating intimacy is good. 
Now, some would bristle with this idea, but it's a good impulse that God has given to desire intimacy with the one you're married to. It is not improper to desire intimacy with your spouse. It's not improper to initiate intimacy with your spouse. The author points out that the beloved's desire for her man is of such great value that she's willing to put herself in danger to get it. The beloved isn't supposed to be alone and afraid, so she pursues the one she's united to. Now, there is something broken in this in scene one. The bride shouldn't have to work for her, this intimacy. Her brokenness, our brokenness, is because of sin. It causes our hearts to have a longing for one who would satisfy our needs of ongoing intimacy. So here in the second half of our poem, the author poetically describes a royal wedding. It is not at all a woman in danger looking for her husband who is missing, but rather it's a king who takes it upon himself to bring his bride to him. He doesn't make her figure out the way to him. No, in this ideal situation, the groom sends his carriage or his litter to her. He provides her with an armed guard escort to bring her to him. This is the idyllic version or vision of what all marriages should be. So it isn't Solomon who she's marrying. She uses the name of the one who would be the greatest match of the day. Who other than the king, the richest, most famous, influential man of her day. She's putting herself in the spot of how a king should treat his bride. This is what any groom should act like for his bride in the perfect scenario, right? So the second half of our chapter, 6 through 11, is what intimacy should be, the idyllic scenario. And let's just be refreshed because of all of the poetry can be confusing. So let's just read 6 through 11 again. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense? with all the fragrant powders of the merchant? Behold, it's the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, the seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So the second half of the poem is introduced by a question that draws our imagination to a cloud of smoke rising in the wilderness. All that's seen in the distance is smoke. But if you look at the text, the description is not just vision, but it's also Scent. There's smell here. In the distance, the smoke smelled of perfumed myrrh and frankincense. So here is an exact great example of the poetry playing with, describing and getting an image in us to convey a point. Um, the poetic description used to convey ideas because smell doesn't cover such a distance. You wouldn't be able to, in the distance, smell the frankincense and myrrh. But the poet wants, uses all of that language to put images in your mind. Um, the smells of frankincense and myrrh are sweet smells. These are good smells. These aren't rancid, nasty smells. So this is like a positive scene here. It's the finest of smells. These scents 
aren't native to Israel. So you don't find these scents in Israel. These are scents that are um, would have been like brought from afar, like from India or Arabia. These scents add to the exotic and luxurious atmosphere the poet is creating. So this question in verse 6 draws our attention and raises curiosity to what possibly could be in the horizon. We learn the answer to our question of what is coming. It's the litter of Solomon. You see, this part of the poem is an arrival song celebrating the appearance of a bride and groom at a wedding. In that day, the wedding tradition, the groom would send his litter to his bride. The bride would be then brought to the groom on the litter. Now, you might not have known what a litter was. Have you ever heard of the word palanquin, possibly? It's a piece of furniture for transportation where one person sits on the transportation where they can recline. Um, it's probably enclosed and it sits borne on the shoulders of men and they carry it with poles. So you know how like the Ark of the Covenant was like, you know, a box on poles that men were carrying. We'll replace the box with a larger box that a woman <laughs> would sit in or recline in. Um, so here in verse 7, there's this grand scene of the bride, the beloved, sitting on the litter or a palanquin on her way to her groom. Unlike the first part of the poem, she isn't looking for him here. He's bringing her to him. But also she's being carried by the, carried by the protection provided by the groom. Look at verse 7 again. It says, um, Around her are 60 mighty men, some of the mightiest men of Israel, all of them wearing swords, an expert in war, with each his sword at his thigh against terror by night. So the bride is incredibly secure here. There is no danger. She is safe and protected. She has 60 of the mightiest men. This would be like an honor guard carrying her and surrounding her, all carrying weapons, all experts in war, all ready for war even against terrors at night. Unlike the first part of the poem, where she was a woman alone, no protection, in the city streets at night. So you see the contrast in the poems? The next two verses, 9 and 10, describe the opulence and the beauty of the palanquin or the litter. There's different parts of the litter that are described. The woods of Lebanon represents the best quality of lumber available, silver post, gold back, the purple seat, which is royalty color. The overall impression of the description of this litter is impossible to miss. It's grand. It's luxurious. It radiates wealth and power. It's made up of the most precious of materials. Then the interior is inlaid with love. The woman who made made the interior, are skillful at the craft of decorating the interior, and they do so with affection. Then lastly, in verse 11, the bride is speaking, again, addressing the young women, the daughters of Zion. She urges the younger women to rush out and gaze upon Solomon, who's wearing his crown, a crown associated with his marriage. The focus here is on the day of his wedding, his bride has arrived in all the splendor to him, and he has gladness of heart indicating the joyous nature of this day, this ceremony that was made to make his heart rejoice. And yet, when you hear Solomon, you should remember the type of man Solomon was. Mm -hmm. We know Solomon isn't really the one who 
fulfill the completeness of intimacy. Solomon is not the ideal groom or husband. His name and his wedding should make us pause and go, ah, uh, wait a minute. This guy is lousy in this area. We know his tragic love history and the details of marriage. I mean, mom read all those verses in um, the first lesson three weeks ago. In 1 Kings, remember, it tells he has 700 wives, 300 concubines. I was spell checking this and I was like, 3,300 concubines. I'm like, oh, that has to be a spell uh, mistake. It is, it's 300. <laughs> but they all turned his heart away from God. Really, don't think that Solomon in and of himself is the idyllic man. No, his tragedy in this area is not idyllic. King Solomon is mentioned to be a foil. His character makes us think, no, that's not him. There's someone who can be, but it's not him. Who is it? If the grandest of men in her time isn't the perfect groom, then who could it be? Who can perfectly satisfy my desires for intimacy? Who can I be securely united with? Who is my protection? Who will make it so I'm never alone? Song of Solomon 3 points towards the one who can be all of that to you. A greater royal wedding is coming. Sister in Christ, whether you're married or not, Jesus is who your soul longs for. He is the one who you can have a deep, intimate relationship with. He is who we are united to. He comes for us and he gets us. We are secure in him. He is our protection from the curse of sin and death. He will always be with us. He'll never abandon us, meaning we're never alone. The yearnings of your soul longs for a husband, and that's good. But an earthly husband can't satisfy you the way the Savior will. The yearning that your soul longs for can't be fulfilled in a powerful, wealthy, earthly king. Only the Savior will satisfy that longing. Intimacy with God is available to you. It is accessible to you as one of God's promises. James 4 tells us, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Trust is at the heart of intimacy. The more we trust someone, the closer we let them get to us. Our experience of God's nearness or distance is not a description of his actual proximity to us, but it's our experience of intimacy with him. Scripture shows us that God is intimate with those who trust him. The more we trust God, the more intimately we can know him. A felt distance from God is often due to a disruption of trust, which could be sin or disappointment. The reality is vitally important to understand. As Christians, we want to experience intimacy with God. God wants intimacy with you. Christ has done all the hard work on the cross to make it possible, all he requires is that you believe in him. He wants you to trust him with all your heart. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean into your own understanding. Intimacy with God often occurs in places where we must trust him most. Heaven on earth in the experiences of joy and the peace that surpasses understanding comes from trusting God wholly. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God gave spouses a desire for intimacy for each other, and that is good. But that intimate desire we long for can never fully be perfectly, constantly satisfied by any human. 
So marriages in this world can be fraught with loneliness. Singleness as well can be fraught with loneliness. Sometimes when you're single, you think, well, if I get married, I won't be lonely anymore. But you still will not have the fullness of being intimate, even if you're married. But because we are all married or single, we just all have a soul longing. We have a soul that longs for intimacy. So don't continue to be alone and afraid. Pursue the Lord for the intimacy your soul craves. Married ladies, be like the beloved and don't hesitate in pursuing your husband. Also, everyone, be like the beloved and keep pursuing the Lord for intimacy with him. Knowing there will be a day in glory where our union will be made perfect, glorious, and more opulent than any royal affair.